0: Hi, Psychodrama listeners. In light of the insurrectionist riot of January 6th in the Capitol, we're excited to bring you Dr. Chris Cooper at Western Carolina University to discuss political psychology, Southern identities, and its influence on the Trump campaign and the January 6th events. Dr. Cooper is the Robert Lee Madison Distinguished Professor and Department Head of Political Science and Public Affairs at Western Carolina University. He has received WCU's highest awards for research and teaching and was named the 2013 North Carolina Professor of the Year by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. He is also the co-author of the book The Resilience of the Southern Identity What the South Still Matters in the Minds of Its People published by the, the University of North Carolina's Press and it is co-editor of the New Politics of North Carolina. He has published research in over 50 refereed journal articles and book chapters on North Carolina politics, state politics, southern politics, political behavior and behavioral public administration. He is frequently consulted in these topics by a variety of media, media sources, including New York Times, Washington Post, The Boston Herald, Al Jazeera, USA Today, CNN, Fox News, National Public Radio, among others. I was very lucky to learn about his research when I was a faculty member at Western Carolina University myself, and I thought that it would be an ideal guest to provide his lens to the events of the six. As the recording begins, Katie and I are talking to Chris about uh, how long he's been at Western Carolina and his interest. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so yeah, so you've been to WCU for 19 years now? Yeah, somewhere okay. in that ballpark, 18,
1: 19 years.
0: Okay, so maybe you can we can start by telling you, know, you're a political scientist, but you're very interested in political psychology. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, the difference between the two and how the methodologies, you know, how you became interested in it and the methodologies informed each other.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, political scientists, we're we're borrowers by nature, right? Some might argue stealers. Hmm. Uh, And so we we tend to kind of take from other disciplines. You're looking at
0: politics after all.
1: Well, that's exactly right. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a gross oversimplification, but I tend to think of most political scientists as being more informed by either economists or psychologists. Mm. Um, and I'm sure if there's political scientists listening, they'll pop back at me, but it gets us 80 percent of the way there. And I've always just been a lot more interested in um, psychology in general and social psychology and kind of how people think about politics and how they make decisions about politics. And so um, to you know probably go too far down this path and i was lucky in 99 i was in grad school and i went to this thing called the summer institute of political psychology and it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of half political scientist, half psychologist. So in the morning you get big shot political scientists in the afternoon big oh. shot psychologist, or vice versa and that really kind of cemented um my interest in and in kind of approach to you know political science using tools of psychology
0: yeah interdisciplinary before interdisciplinary was cool
1: that's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. it. It's probably not cool again now. now you're supposed to be in this essay, but, uh, but yeah, um, yeah, I, I you know, I've always thought, and, and I know you had Hal Herzog, our mutual friend on this before, mm-hmm. you know, Hal always made the argument that I buy that the most interesting things are happening at the borders between disciplines. Um, And I think that's absolutely true. Sometimes that means importing things from other folks. Sometimes it means exporting to other disciplines, but it makes me think about the world better. And that should be the point of the enterprise. Got it. Cool. And I mean, and I, I should say that, you know, you, you and I, I was at
0: Western Carolina for uh, the first, first half of my academic career. So I know you from there, I know a little bit more of your, of your research, but maybe you can tell, um, our, um, hundreds of listeners especially in Reykjavik (laughs) uh (laughs) 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 yeah big takfir to our friends in Reykjavik uh that uh uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research area which I think is very interesting and then your book and then we can segue into our topic for today which we're trying to figure out what the heck just happened in January
1: 6th yeah um right so the easy questions we'll get to in a little bit I mean yeah so in general and and I'll kind of preface this by saying I'm like I'm super lucky. Um, So, you know, academics end up in all sorts of of jobs and universities. And uh, I think people tend to think about, you know, the big R1 job or the small liberal arts college. And I'm in one that is neither fish nor fowl at a regional comprehensive university. And what that means for me is that I get to kind of do what I think is interesting and I don't get a whole lot of pressure from um, the university to stay in my lane. Um, n- but I still have some resources to actually get some research done. Um, unlike some folks. So I am, I'm super lucky that I can do weird stuff and I can do what I'm interested in. And so my work tends to again be informed by tools of psychology and I've done a good bit of work on personality um, in psychology kind of mass mass politics and personality. But I've also done a lot of work on Southern politics and on state politics. And mm. so those are um, in campaigns and elections and representation within that. So kind of how people think about politics, how we're represented in politics. Um, and again, it's weird and it's kind of a mix of stuff. And uh, and I, I kind of like it that way.
0: <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons I thought you would being fantastic for the show is because I remember your research in Southern identities and Southern, yep. southern politics and how it affects policy. And this January, the events of January 6th, for those of you who yeah. <laughs> made that reminder, uh, was basically at a time in which I'll I'll go ahead and use the term insurrectionist riot broke into yeah. the Capitol, I, I guess probably would be accurate. And a lot of people, you know, we saw the Confederate flag arguably flying in there for the first time. Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of layers for this, but I thought maybe your yeah. area of research would be interesting. So maybe you can, yeah, what sure. were your thoughts about it when you saw it in there and how can you, your research kind of inform that? What do you make of that? Um, yeah those politics uh giving support to trump
1: yeah um so yeah so the the book is um it's called the resilience of southern identity um so university of north Carolina press put it out and, and my pal gibbs knots um who's at the college of charleston and i wrote that and um we try to look you know at why the notion of southern identity has been resilient has been stable so you'd think it wouldn't be right so you know we're talking i'm talking from Cullowhee, North Carolina. We got somebody from Fargo. We got somebody from Portland. The landscape in those places yeah. it kind of looks similar. right? You're gonna find like a, a big REI near. You're gonna find you know some outdoor mall. <laughs> um, and so you people said ah, maybe regional identity will go away with the kind of homogenization of the landscape. And what we find mm. is actually the opposite. That in some ways the more um, the external world changes, the more people want to hold on to regional identities, right? Um, and so that was the, the puzzle of that book and working on some other stuff now with some other folks connecting that to politics um, and a little bit more explicitly. And, and we've also done some a lot of work on the Confederate flag um, and done some work more recently on Confederate monuments and public opinion of those and, and to what degree racial resentment is driving that. So anyway, all that is is kind of a backdrop, um, and so the events of, of of the sixth, I mean, the fray, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what to call it. You know, was it a riot? Was it an insurrection? I tend to think it's it's terrorism. Um, okay. So these are folks who were using um, threats of violence and in some cases violence um, to political ends, and uh-huh. so I'm I'm far from a a terrorism expert, and I don't pretend to be one, but that's that is how I tend to think about it. And it this. fits the
0: FBI, at least general outlines of the FBI uh, definition, for
1: sure. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, as I was watching that unfold and, you know, like a lot of people, I was, um, you know, kind of watching in real time. I mean, I was, you know, I was stunned. I was disappointed. I was dismayed. I was sickened. I was disgusted. All of those things wrapped up in one. And there's been some really smart, um, particularly historians, as much as I hate to say it, Mm -hmm. uh, who have been (laughs) writing um, about (laughs) the connection to the South and the Old South. Um, Karen Cox at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte had a really good piece of the new york times that i highly recommend folks read um and okay. and other folks as well but yeah. know, i think cox's work is really critical
0: to this we'll, yeah and we'll link that to great right. notes for sure
1: so yeah i mean so the you know in seeing the confederate flag uh it you know being carried across I me mean, such an iconic picture and add a couple of thoughts i mean one is um you know discussed like anybody um But also, I noticed people saying this is the first time the the flag has been in the Capitol. And I mean, that's sort of true, right, in in terms of the insurrection. But if we think about the Mississippi state flag, uh, which has had Mm -hmm. uh, until very recently the Confederate flag embedded within it, Mm we think about the Georgia flag until recently had the Confederate flag embedded within it. So it's it's. Sort of true and sort of not true that we mm-hmm. haven't seen the Confederate flag in the Capitol before. And I think it's a kind of important to acknowledge that, that mm-hmm. pretty recently it was a normal part of, of life in Washington to see this flag with the Confederacy embedded within it.
2: That, that's a really great point. And um, it, is, it was kind of the idea, I think, when people try to acknowledge progress balanced with the past, it can sometimes be portrayed as this was the very first time so i really appreciate that point that within state flags a confederate flag was embedded in them i think that is a reality check for where we're at with that
1: mhm yeah yeah and you know we could think too about just confederate monuments in general right i mean many of those have been in the capital we think about state capitals and, and many still have confederate statues in and around them um mm-hmm. so symbols of the the lost cause um mm-hmm. as some folks call it or are, are spread throughout the landscape and um, again that's one thing we're starting to look at a little bit more we've got some surveys we put in the field fairly recently about um, public opinion of these uh, monuments and kind of what tends to drive opinion of them
0: one of the re- the research that I, I remember – correct me if I'm wrong is you looked into how much you, you kind of wanted to define the boundaries of the you know what does the Confederacy look like, and you looked into it was really neat methodology. So you looked at the businesses that had the word Dixie in it. Is that is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then something was there something else or just yeah. like how and they use the flight. So maybe talk about that yeah. because it was kind of interesting to see how it, the boundaries may have expanded or changed and identify that identity.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So um, what we did, and again, some of it's in our book, and there was also a paper we published in a journal called Social Forces, which is primarily sociologists, but don't hold that against them. Um, uh, And also a journal called Southern Cultures, which again, is mostly historians, same joke applies. Um, But what we did was we tried to map the South, and some other folks had done this too, based on business names with the word Dixie in them, compared Mm -hmm. to business names with the word Southern in them. And so Mm -hmm. a guy named John Shelton Reed started doing this in the 70s when you had to actually comb through phone books. It seems like kind of a pain. (laughs) Um, We did it. Obviously, we had a little bit better uh, uh, technology at our disposal. And so what we found, um, part of it was continued decline in Dixie. So I think with that paper, initial paper, we called declining Dixie, um, a geographer, uh, named Derek Alderman calls this deconfederatization. Okay. Sort of the deconfederatization of the landscape, but we also found tremendous stability in the term Southern, right? So, um, The idea that there was still a connection to the South, but people were trying to differentiate themselves from the Old South, right? So Dixie, so declining Dixie, but stability or perhaps even slight gains in Southern, and so we, um, so some other folks have called this, you know, just deconfederatization. We then added the idea of re Southernization. So the idea that Southernization is sort of replacing this deconfederatization. And you can think about that, you know, if you go to Charleston or you go to Asheville or you go to Atlanta, um, you know, you can't trip without, you know, stumbling into some restaurant that's, you know, new Southern fare. And fortunately, um, many times those businesses are being, and restaurants are being run by people of color. And so, in In some ways, it is a reclamation of a past, um, you know, that, of course, was defined much by race, but but that African-Americans, of course, own the term as much, if not more than whites do. So we actually Mm. found, too, if you look at public opinion polls, it used to be like in the 70s. You say, you know, what's your opinion of Southerners? And for the most part, white people were for it african-americans mm. thought it was pretty bad mm. by the late 90s early 2000s african-americans actually have slightly more positive views of the term southerner than whites do so again this kind of reclamation of the idea of being southern and then the way that plays out of course in politics i, I got curious i'm like do you ever
0: see uh, confederate flags around fargo much katie
2: yeah, actually, I was going to say, so I grew up in South Florida, and then Leo and I met in Tallahassee at when we were in grad school at, at Florida State University, and I saw the Confederate flag um, growing up in South Florida, and it stood out a little bit more because, you know, the way Florida is, it's kind of northern Florida it has more of the southern identity and southern culture. South Florida has less of that, so it seemed kind of sometimes more intentional. Um, it stood out more, I'll just say that, at school. I didn't I didn't say that well, so I'll cut that out later and say it more beautifully. But no, basically... I disagree. <laughs> thank you. So then when we were in Tallahassee, saw it quite a bit. And when I see it up in North Dakota or Minnesota... It is a very different experience. It's more Uh jarring to me because it's possible that there are people from the South who kind of moved up and those types of things. But it is often I notice when I've driven through South Dakota and Minnesota, it is paired with, you know, Trump signage and, and those types of things. And I it does. Make me wonder: Are these individuals who moved up from the South, or are they people in Minnesota, North Dakota that are di- identifying somewhat with this Confederate flag for other reasons? Mm-hmm. And so, it does, so I do see it. It's it's rare, but it stands out. And um, I have seen you know um, some trucks drive by that have the Confederate flag waving and things like that. And North Dakota does have people from other areas move in, but there are a lot of people who grew up around here and kind of stayed around here so it does hit me differently i would say when i see it here than when i was living in tallahassee
1: and if i can just hop in real quick too it's such a good um point and so you know less less wonky academic studies more like like you were doing actually connecting this to to real world i was in teaching in germany couple years ago, like I said, mm. I'm a pretty, pretty lucky fellow. And uh, I went on a run and uh, I saw a Confederate flag. Yeah. I think so I've heard came, of this phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. It's, so I came back to the class and I was just like, hey, help me understand this. I said, you know, I know what this means, where I'm from. What does this mean here? And I'll never forget this. That's why it's always good to teach abroad if you can. This, this kid raises his hand and he says, well, I'll tell you right now, it's the only hate symbol that's still legal in Germany. Right. Wow. And that was, yeah, it was like such a just he got right to the heart of it um you know would have taken a southerner you know half hour to dance around to that with like <laughs> 19 references to other things and this kid just bam nails it right like that
0: that's so interesting because my my experience with the confederate flag is similar to i, I was born and raised in colombia so mm-hmm. i own the only the only way i knew the confederate flag was through the dukes of hazard so i thought it was bad because it, it would always be flying over roscoe and um had boss hogg yeah so like i did, and i you know it was a general leave, but no kidding i had no context to the history and then moved to new york which was a yankee state and then there was a little bit of it and i remember seeing it like people who go to washington square in new york city they actually sell um union uh, hats so there are people who walk, walk around with union uniforms and you can tell that they're like tourists looking for yeah. tchotchkes from from the city but then moved to uh, this Texas for the first time. And you see a lot of because Texas is its own, you know, as they will tell you, its mm-hmm. own country. We were our first our own country first. So you see a lot of more at uh, Texas chauvinism. But then sometimes you start seeing a lot of the the confederate flag. And the first time I was like, what the hell? I'm like, that's that's once I you learn about the country, it's like this is the the confederate flag i'm like this is that's a pro-slavery flag and they're like no it's not it's about the south and i'm like yeah but you know when right and then it was kind of and then you start just getting used to it by the time i i actually left the south i lived there for, you know lived in texas uh you know south georgia north florida and uh western north carolina so i've had my my buffet of the south Mm -hmm. uh and and it's barbecues and i and and I, I kind of learned to like understand why for some people it's like no, it's not about that. It's not a reason without while they're missing, you know, whether you say you know intentionally or unintentionally, uh, the the history and what it may mean for other people. So it, it's so when I moved out and I was like okay, no, no no longer seeing that. One, once in a while, they just kind of you see it and you're like, what the hell? Like, you're not supposed to be here, kind of yeah. thing. Uh, and I, I, it is always, as, as Katie said, either married or I just assume he's married. You see it associated with the Trump flag, and it's, it has been interesting to see how much. I wonder, maybe you can talk about how yeah. Trump has uh, his politics or the, you know, the the movement that he's tapped into. It is is linked to kind of southern identities or the or you know the yeah. what the Confederate flag stands for, I guess.
2: Now yeah. and and if you don't mind, real quick, I was just going to say, you know, part of the context for I think why. And when I was in high school, I in South Florida, there there was um, busing used to desegregate schools still. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were people who lived, you know, black people, African Americans, who lived 20, 30 minutes away that were being bused in to make sure the schools were integrated. So when white students were having Confederate flags and they talked a lot about heritage, not hate, and that was a big thing, but it was not necessarily perceived that way at all and so this was something where there were discussions about it within my school and so that was some of the context hearing that dialogue and then moving to Tallahassee and seeing more of it it does seem like um, the meaning attached to it can be really different depending on what it is but but remembering that it was brought up in terms of people not feeling welcome, who you know, black students were being bussed into a school that was away from where they lived for the purposes of desegregating schools, and then feeling not welcome by some of the student, understandably, that were kind of arguing, no, this is heritage, not hate. Well, that's not what that means. So anyway, that was just mm-hmm. kind of a follow up context.
1: So it's great, yeah, and I think, and I'll kind of jump on that and then and then ex- and try to answer or at least address Leo's question, kind of connecting back to politics, but. As I think about all this kind of flag discussion of what does it mean and that, that heritage, not hate era, which I think was alive for a while, the, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the, the phrase I keep thinking of and I, when I'm teaching this, um, it didn't come from a political scientist or a psychologist or anybody, but Tom Petty, uh, the musician who recently passed away is from Gainesville, Florida. That's and great. he had an album called Southern Accents. And when he, when he toured, he had a big Confederate flag behind him with the Southern Accents thing. And, and he apologized later in his life. He said, you know, I blew it. I, I didn't get what it meant. I get it now. And I made a mm. mistake. But his phrase, I always thought was so good. He said, growing up, the Confederate flag was the wallpaper of life. It's mm-hmm. just there and you don't think about it. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes stopping and thinking about it. You know, being woke, if you will, really, um, before you realize what it means. And and I think about contrasting that as part of the book. We did some um, some focus groups and talked to, of course, um, some white folks and some African Americans from the south. And one of the African American um, women was talking about she was living in, in a city and she said, uh, you know, when if I go to cross, you know, that moment where like you're in a city and then uh, you go to cross at the, the stop, the changes, the stoplight changes and you're, you're ready to walk. And there's the moment of like, does that car see that they're supposed to stop before I right. go? Right. And she said that if she looks and sees a Confederate flag on the front of the car, it's an extra few beats before she's willing to walk. And I, I always just thought yeah. like living life with that in the forefront of your mind is something, you know, so this is radio. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a white guy. Um, it's something that I don't. <laughs> I can't understand. Um, And so, listening to people's experience, I think shows kind of what Katie's pointing to: how different people are perceiving the symbol differently over time. And that was the point, right? So, when the uh, United uh, Daughters of the Confederacy were putting all these monuments around the South in the early 1900s, and they were, Mm -hmm. you know. Pitching the Confederate flag and seeing an increased usage of the Confederate flag, they were trying to recreate the meaning of it in their own way. Um, the Confederate flag sales were way down until um, the until Strom Thurmond mm. ran for uh, president on a segregationist ticket and started flying Confederate flags at his rallies. Mm. So the people that argue that this has been a kind of a stable. Um, you know, that we've always thought the same thing, and it was okay, and it was about Southern heritage, not mm. hate. It's just – it's really not true, right, mm. that it's a symbol. It does mean different things to different people, but it has evolved or devolved over time. Mm. Um, so anyway, t- too much on that, and I'll try now to bring us back to, to Trump and to well, this is good. I'll, this is good stuff. I
2: it, it is. I really appreciate you putting that into context. I think you're right that there are some – assumptions and continuity without looking at the context of changes and meaning, especially intentional changes and in meaning or intentional ways of bringing back symbols for purposes of promoting racist views yep. and other types of things. So thank you for framing that.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I guess to connect it a little bit to politics, right? So super brief history lessons for the, the folks in Iceland who think about other things other than American <laughs> politics and political history. I can't. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which is uh, fermented shark, and it's delicious. Really? No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, you, Leo's you just mean, trying to get some fermented shark yeah, just, sponsors.
0: That's exactly right. I'm trying to get the sponsorship. From and there. all
2: of this, we should say, is because Leo got an email suggesting that we are we are big in Iceland. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so said, email, well, "Hey, your, your your podcast is like incre- You know, it's most downloaded in like top 200 or something in Iceland." i was like, great. We're going to just tap that market.
2: Yeah, I'm <laughs> so, vegan, like, relatively speaking. And, too. I've, I've,
0: you know, and I've been <laughs> twice, like, now three times. And so, so and I did try the, the Hakarl and yeah. it tastes like if you leave um, brie cheese out, out of the refrigerator and it gets really, like, cheesy, like that. It's yeah. like that. It's very concentrated, but, you know, I'll, I'll try Hakarl a couple of times. It's good. And actually, it's an acquired taste.
1: I, I bet it is. I, I might not want to acquire it. I, I'll, I'll add to, like, I mean, clearly, we, we know that Leo, anybody who's listening knows Leo doesn't have kids, because if you've had kids and you hear shark, all you can think of is baby shark. Oh, God. You right. want to leap out of the nearest window. So,
2: anyway. <laughs> can confirm, have kids, and can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so, so back yeah, to yeah, Trump. <laughs> yeah, back to
1: Trump, and uh, the shark metaphor could work. But anyway, um, yes. all right. So if we think about what happened, and I think this is a kind of why Southern politics is, is super important to understand. So the Arguably the biggest story in American politics over the last hundred years has been the um, the transformation of the South from a one-party Democratic South to a two-party South and then arguably to a Republican South. And so there's a lot of good books written about that. There's a great one called The Long Southern Strategy written by Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields. It's an Oxford Press book um, folks should check out. Um, but anyway, uh, the super quick version uh, – if you don't want to read the whole book, uh, is that, uh, they had what was called a Southern strategy. Okay. So a couple of ways to think about the Southern strategy, and this connects to Trump, I promise is that again, the South was controlled by Democrats. Republicans are starting to think that they've got a way in. And, um, as described by Lee Atwater, who was a Republican operative from the South. Um, he said, we, we started, uh, using uh, words like, and then he gives the the N word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we started using that and then we couldn't use that anymore. So he started using words like bus. And he says, and then we started using words like urbanization. Mm-hmm. But the reality is it was all still. And then he says the N word again. And this is all in a in a book um, written by a guy named Alex Lamus a political scientist. So anyway, sort of describes how they used race to get white voters or, or said differently. Another Republican operative said that um, we need to get White voters, and we are going to hunt where the ducks are. In other words, we're going to go to the South to try to use race as a wedge to get white voters and to take over the American South. And they did very, very successfully. And so we think about Barry Goldwater is another good example of that. This, all the Southern strategy stuff, a lot of it was during Nixon. and again, Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields make an argument that it has been a much longer Southern strategy that has extended all the way. that started before we tend to think it did and it has extended all the way through today. And so they draw a very clear through line to Trump. Um, and I think you do see that, right? Um, you see the ways in which Trump used race um, and uh, used race to maintain the south and, and to maintain the south for republican politics um so absolutely i think understanding southern politics and the way that it is practiced you've got you know to, it, it gives you a better sense of donald trump and yes the irony is not lost that he, we're talking about a guy from new york right. who, uh you know uh, the spends the rest of in south florida exactly
0: Yep. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to, to kind of go back to the earlier point you made. You said that, you know, that the more people, you know, there is more change around an environment or, you know, a society, then people kind of try, especially, you know, people who are more conservative in their politics or ideology are going to try to cling on to their life, to their version of tradition or their or society more. So you can see as in a, in a rapidly changing um multicultural country uh in which there's that you know there's two opposing forces we could say a strong conservative force and a strong more liberal progressive force that is about multicultural biden now said something about multiculturalism multiculturalism and then immediately there's like you're calling us racist and mm-hmm. there's that that immediate kind of punch to it and one of the things that um trump was doing was uh you know he as you mentioned kind of just used keywords right so rather than using race specifically so saying like we we're not going to get rid of names of um bases that mm-hmm. had confederate you know confederate um names mm-hmm. in, in a you know right in, in this, it, And this and i had not even thought about it. i just I, it didn't hit me that holy crap we still have bases that are named after confederate generals like that makes right like I'm like these yeah. were literally traitors to the union and i'm like mm-hmm. how the hell it, it, and then it's like and then use that as a as a as a very strong signal to their to his base, saying, "Hey, this is what it's about." So mm-hmm. that's it, that's an interesting, yeah, very interesting. I guess you know politics. I guess it's a very useful, yeah, for somebody who was in many ways a Democrat in many ways for <laughs> for mm-hmm. many years of his life.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. And you know, I think it highlights too why understanding psychology is so critical too to understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Politics and and how people think all this conversation, a lot of it is about identity, right? Which is, you know, inherently a a psychological concept, right? It's Mm -hmm. about how we are perceiving ourselves in relation to the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it really in, you know, there's a lot more kind of circle back to our the, the wonkier part of the conversation, the more academic part about, you know, what is political psychology and how does all this fit together? You know, There's all sorts of psychologists, and I'm talking about political scientists stealing from psychologists, but there's a lot of psychologists who are doing really good work about politics now, and there was a great paper um, that I think it actually be worth linking to in the show notes um, written by a bunch of psychologists and political scientists, like 30 authors. I think it was in Science, and they argue – that polarization, right? The idea that, mm-hmm. that we're being pulled into different poles, right? Opposites yeah. um, is not uh, uh, the word we should be using anymore, that we need to be talking about sectarianism. And it Ugh. took, and exactly. And, yeah. It much scarier, right? And so, but it took a bunch of psychologists and political scientists kind of working together to say it's not just that it's getting worse. We need a whole new framework to describe um, kind of what's happening here.
0: Wow. Yeah, that is, and it kind of ties a little bit to, because one of the, one of the things that people are, as people are poring over the data, right, is one of the interesting things they saw was, you know, it's easy to say, well, he's just allu- um, trying to allure to white voting, you know, kind of that white resentment, whatever, however you want to know that, great loss cause. But the reality, and I, when people kind of sift through it, it's like the reality is that his, uh, his support among minority voters increased, mm-hmm. uh, and and I'll say as a Hispanic um, mm-hmm. Person, I was like that was it kind of interesting surprising but yet not you know when people started explaining you know you know how his how Hispanic voters are not a monolith but it still it was interesting to see that you know in 2016 his, his support you know the, the share of voters for Hillary Clinton that were Hispanic was higher so people mm-hmm. saw four years of Donald Trump and minority voters said yeah I want some more of that and more people sign on to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just saying to me, that's why the juxtaposition of the, the the Confederate flag and its expansion geographically is really interesting because there are people of color for whom that uh, iconography does no longer represents racism. It represents something else. And it, whether it's conservative idealism, I don't know what exactly it might represent. I, and I don't know if there's any data that has looked at what it might mean for minority voters, but it, that was interesting is to see that, for people who arguably, many people would say arguably, you know, his policies affected the most, perhaps negatively, they actually, the, the vote increased. And that was really interesting. And even, you know, yeah. among Mexican-Americans in Texas versus the ones in Arizona, it was different. And I don't know. It's it's, it's a whole yeah. it's, it's, no, It's, it's think, a lot. So I don't know, but,
1: you know. No, I think it's it's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, amongst African-American voters, I mean, it's still, you know, overwhelmingly democratic. You sure. know, the, the Hispanic and Latino vote, I think, is... Um, much you know i I, certainly i'm not an expert in this but i've read a lot about it for folks who want to dig in there's a group called latino decisions Mm. that does really really good work on this and actually a historian friend of mine at at western has a book um western carolina sorry has a book called the latino vote and it's about the creation of the latino vote Mm. and his big point is that the notion that there is a latino vote is a construction Right. There mm-hmm. never was one in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really was up for grabs for a long time, which party was going to win even what they thought of as the Latino vote. Right. Um, so the whole thing is, is this interesting construction. And I think you're right. Um, Mexican-Americans are going to behave very differently than other types of Latino voters. For example, you could pick any group, right, and say that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we need to not think about them as a, as a monolithic set of people. Um, we need to think about them as people who uh have different backgrounds yeah. and respond differently to things.
0: And I think that's why when you said, you know, it's it's more less polarization but more sectarianism. Mm-hmm. And that it worries me more because it, it reminds me more of places not you just don't have a congregation between one, two sides, but rather multiple factions at once. And I'm like, that's to me that sounds scarier, more dangerous in a way.
1: I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, I it so, is. It? yeah. Uh, I was talking to some folks on public radio, and they were saying that remind the term just reminds them a lot of Northern Ireland, all of a sudden, and and the troubles and what's happening yeah there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think about Yugoslavia, you know, the breakup of Yugoslavia, which was you know for many years you know under the communist bloc, but still, the, the, I, I talked to you, I don't remember I heard by somebody saying that you know at the Olympics you know, is there all these people still yelling Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. and four years later ad war with each other and that i think we've been this hope the the january 6 events kind of jarred a lot of us like this this experiment this, this, this democratic experiment imperfect as it is that we are on it's not as stable as we would like to believe it is and, mm-hmm. and i think that was a, that was a big reminder and, and also one of the questions that we wanted to run by you was that it was interesting because I, and i actually remember because i we were having drinks at i think at hal herzog's house where after the after obama was elected the second time and you and i were having a conversation i was like wow there's a lot of strife within the republican party mm-hmm. and they're kind of eating their young and you're like hey man let them I, you know what you gonna yeah. do uh because they come up with this post-mortem. You know, there's a lot of point finger-pointing, like, what's going on? Like, we need to increase the outreach and be more multicultural. Like, you know, it sounded like they were moving more towards a more progressive, mm-hmm. what do consider, more European conservative, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. Boris Johnson's, I don't know, maybe not a point. But, you know, like, mm-hmm. the conservative, but it's still kind of more progressive European parties. That's what it seemed like it was headed towards. And it just went 180 degrees. They, 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 Trump basically took... That postmortem from that election shredded it and went the complete opposite direction to win, right? Eventually, mm-hmm. and some people would say it's a, it's an artifact of the, the electoral college, but I don't know. What what do you make of of kind of that taking you know where where Republican little um, Republican intelligentsia said they should go and then where, where the actual populist wing went?
1: Yeah, I mean, so yeah, they did. I mean, right? They had this postmortem and they said, hey, we got to be more inclusive. Um, my Kind of quick story that of what I think happened is I'll, I'll I'll tell you on the front. It's kind of boring. Um, my explanation. Good.
0: Is that's you. what you exactly, That's what we it's, want. That's <laughs> what you want. That really Holy turns the board. listeners this is really,
2: this
1: on. That's what <laughs> keeps people in. That's how you're gonna go from Iceland all over, over the way to Greenland. So. Um, <laughs> but
2: put in a it's, circle.
1: That's our <laughs> goal. Just hop right over. So, um, look the Republican field in the primary was huge. Mm-hmm. And so I think that can't be underestimated. If they had had a smaller Republican field, if there had been one, we'll just say quote establishment candidate, one Marco Rubio or one Jeb Bush, um, or one person that kind of represents that group of voters, I don't think we'd be having a conversation about Donald Trump as being anything other than a rate, you know, a, a, a reality tv star um i think what happened was they split the party didn't control enough and they split the establishment vote four five six ways and donald trump got all of the ones who wanted that populism and so once he won the primary You know, he just whittled it out and he whittled away these folks because, again, it's just a math problem. They were just splitting the establishment group, which was larger than the populist group, but it split amongst a bunch of people. So you end up in the very end with the fact that Trump got all of the populist folks in his team won him the primary. So if you buy that story, that the primary story wasn't really about Trump had the right message but Trump had the right message given that field. Then you get to the general. You remember the Republicans are pissed for the most part Mm -hmm. um, that they got Trump, but they looked behind door number two and they saw Hillary Clinton. And -hmm. as much as they didn't really like what Trump was selling, they liked it a whole lot better than what Hillary Clinton was selling. And they thought, okay, yeah, this isn't the guy we wanted, but we can still get our conservative policies out of him, right? Mm -hmm. We can still get republican supreme court justices and conservative Mm -hmm. supreme court justices and they did Mm -hmm. so and then the 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 vote in the general was actually getting really boring it was like in 2016 it looked almost exactly like it did in 2012 Mm -hmm. the um so like the correlation across states was something like you know 0.96 or something it was the same voting patterns. so the way we get trump i think is most explainable by the primary, and the primary was the thing we didn't see coming, and the general was actually really boring. And then once they had him, of course, they're going to ride him as far as they can. Mm. And um, anyway, that that is my boring story of what I think happened.
0: <laughs> so, so yes, they're saying there's too many. Well, I guess what was striking to me is how much, and we actually talked in our pre- with a previous podcast with Josh Miller, who is a psychologist at UGA, about you know whether it's Trump is psychopathic or not, narcissistic yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And that was because while there was you know a very wide field, there were some. I mean, Chris Christie is not one person. He's not a politician. Is he's, he's not like Jeb Bush, because who is decidedly just boring. You know, like please, you know that that please clap. And it was amazing how much Trump would just find the one thing and just bully them about that. Chris yeah. Christie is not that kind of person, you know, like he can take in and de- definitely kind of dish it out to me. It was just interesting how he just managed to kind of systematically pick at each one of them. And I think it's because neither Chris Christie nor any of, any of the ones were as willing to be blatantly openly, you know, kind of blow those whistles, those racial, you know, or Southern yep. identity whistles, as trump, as trump was and and i think that that's that may be part of the um there reason because that southern you know whatever it is that, yeah. that that southern rebel identity it has expanded throughout the midwest and parts you know that kind of the, the fly over america
2: mm-hmm.
0: um that that's why he got as much support he's like yeah this guy has no problems and people they, they'll tell you and like they had like you know like fuck your feelings yeah like, like that, that cannot get more explicit as to what is it that it what that Id that is uh, that he's appealing to so it's really interesting so I'm I'm really interested to to think what are your thoughts as to now that it's all you know there's a debacle and yeah. where where does the Republican Party go from here
1: you know I don't know I mean it you know Trumpism is not gone Trump is gone um but well, at least for now mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but Trumpism is not and um the Trump brand is still alive and well so in North Carolina Lara Trump who is Eric Trump's wife, all right. So oof. Donald Trump's yeah, exactly. <laughs> Donald Trump's, law, <laughs> oof, Trump's okay. uh, uh, daughter-in-law is going to run for United States Senate. Or at Get least out. She's going to run for Senate. No, yeah, she's and she's not quashing those rumors. Now, it may not happen. We'll see, wow. but it's real enough that people are polling about you know what are Larry Trump's numbers like in North Carolina. There wow. are rumors that Ivanka may run in Florida.
0: That I did hear. I guess um, Marco Rubio. Yeah.
1: So, you know, we'll see if any of that happens. So, you know, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to to understand. I was on a, sh- uh, a radio program in Toronto the other day and with this guy who was a Republican strategist, Trump guy. Mm. And uh, in the show, he argued that Republicans don't really like Mitch McConnell anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is really interesting. So, I mean, this is a party that you know, I think is is having to do a lot of soul searching. I don't know where it's going to come out. The one thing I do think I know is that we're not going to have a third party in America
2: mm.
1: is um, prominent in any way, just the institutional structures don't allow it. Yeah. Um, so it's going to just be a matter of how the Republican Party ends up sorting itself out.
2: Mm.
0: It's so interesting you mentioned that about Mitch McConnell because I have been, um, I've been digging through the Conservatives of Reddit kind of just looking and seeing kind of what the temperature is in there. Um, and there's a lot of that. It, it, there seems to be a lot of people kind of just going back and forth like they're pissed at, my, uh, at McConnell because he didn't give, you know, he put this, the Kabosh in a $2,000 stimulus. Uh, and then they blame him for Georgia. I mean, Georgia was lost because of this. So and then there's other conservatives, and there is like, since when are we the party of giving? Like that's not what we do. And then there's this like the very that populist wing. They're like, and Trump was behind it. He was like, hell yeah, give people money.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and you know whatever you may you may say maybe. It was was his intention behind it. Somehow now that everything's not, you know, the Senate is gone, House is gone, and the presidency is gone, so there are a lot of fingers to print, But I, you know, Mitch McConnell has been, if anything, a survivor of many things. So it'll be really interesting to see how oh, who wins, who who wins out of this particular context. Yeah, I don't know.
2: And I'm curious. Okay. I, I'm curious about um, with Ossoff and Warnock winning Georgia mm-hmm. and Trump losing Georgia. Um, how does that fit in with Southern identity and kind of rethinking yeah. strategy and things yeah, like that? Yeah, great
1: question. Yeah, great, great point. So, um, you know, I think one thing it may suggest is that there are multiple Souths, not one South, right? And we know there's multiple, you know, kinds of Southern identity. Um, so as we talked about, mm. right, you got African-Americans that are increasingly identifying as Southern. So I think there may be multiple, uh, multiple types of Southern identity. We know there's definitely, I think, multiple types of South. So how do we kind of wrap our head around that? Um political scientist named Charles Bullitt talks about the growth states and the uh, – I forget his term for the other – but basically states that are growing and states that aren't growing. So he says North Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, Florida, Texas, those growth states are showing very, very different voting patterns and um, kind of is moving in a very different direction than – I think he calls it the stagnating south. Um, your Mississippi's, your Alabama's um uh, louisiana to some degree arkansas um Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm.
1: and so maybe there's something there um on the georgia piece i mean i think it's important to note that i mean it's critical it's hugely important the outcome matters i'm not denying any of that but of every state that voted for donald trump His margin, or excuse me, that voted for Joe Biden, his margin was the smallest in Georgia of any of those states, Mm. right? So he's like right on Mm. the cusp. And in North Mm -hmm. Carolina, and this will actually play right into your electoral college point too, in Mm. North Carolina, of every state that Trump won, his margin was the smallest in North Carolina of any state. Mm. So look at that differently. Georgia and North Carolina are more alike than North Carolina and the next most Republican state. It is only because we give all of our electors mm. to the winner do we say this state's red and this state's blue. The reality mm. is there each one is on just opposite side of a razor's edge. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, North Carolina, Virginia, um, Georgia, Florida, Texas are going to be, you know, swing states, purple states. Battleground states, choose your term. Just don't call them a surefire win for either party mm. going forward. Um, and so, what does that mean for Southern politics? I mean, you know, maybe it means there are Southern politics plural as opposed to uh, mm. to singular, uh, which perhaps there were before as well. Um, you know, I think it's also kind of worth thinking through racial voting patterns in these different places, and even within states. So we know this is a fun one that always. Um, takes a few people off. There's a book that just came out recently called deep roots that Mm. argues that the places with the highest levels of Republican voting today are the places that had the most slavery Hmm. They argue that this is, it's not just a correlation thing that their argument is and read the book and decide for yourself that it's causal and that this happens through this path of behavior, this, what they call behavioral path dependence. So, Mm. You know, during slave times, you know, some white plantation owner passes these ideas back to their kid, to mm-hmm. their kid, and on down. And so you tend to see it borne out today. There was a similar study done on Klan chapters by mm-hmm. um, a sociologist at, at Washington University, last name Cunningham, where he shows similar kinds of things. So put all that together in a stew, and what does it mean? It means there's still considerable variation within states and between states in the
2: South. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Do you attribute some of that change as well to Stacey Abrams was praised a lot and others who really um, push towards the get out the vote effort and have focused on disenfranchisement as affecting uh, Mm -hmm. historical outcomes? What role do you see that playing going forward?
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that's a a super important one. so my goal is to tick off as many people as possible. So this is the one. All the conservatives got mad at me a minute ago.
2: Now the liberals are
1: mad at me this one. Uh, but wait till the thought's fully finished till you come
2: after me. That's what we go for on psychodrama. Just irritate, provoke <laughs> people dramatic. on all sides, scroll up that drama. See, so you had Hal Herzog on, so I assumed everybody
1: left mad about something it's, there. Oh you know?
0: yeah, it's like we we were trying to get a sponsor from Purina, but that's 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 out. <laughs>
1: Yes. And uh yeah, anyway. I'll I'll stop that one there. Um so uh so in the general um election, not the runoff, but in the general, African American turnout wasn't actually up much over twenty sixteen. It was up some, but white turnout in Georgia, I'm sorry, was actually up more. So as so if you can sort of imagine slopes of two lines, the the white turnout slope was steeper from 2016 to 2020 than the black slope in Georgia. Okay. So that's the part that's going to piss people off. because they going to think I just said Stacey Abrams doesn't matter, which I do not think is true. Um, but in the runoff, it turns out African-American turnout was way up. And mm-hmm. so if you, if you buy that the Stacey Abrams effect is primarily felt amongst the African-American community, which is a debatable point then, uh, but if you buy that, then the, the runoff showed greater um, Stacey Abrams effect, if you will. The Stacey Abrams variable gave you more uh, explanatory power in the, the runoff than it did in the general. And to jump off into a slightly related point, since I'm now just evidently in random connection mode, um, <laughs> the very notion that we have a runoff, I think people need to think through. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they don't have runoffs in most of the country. They have it in the South. And Mm. in a couple other states, I think, including North Dakota, strangely enough. Mm. Um, And the reason is it's a vestige of the one party Democratic South. And Mm. it was put in essentially to continue to drive out the African-American vote. So the notion that there was a runoff in the first place is pretty much a uniquely Southern politics phenomenon. Mm. Um, Mm. Kind of reinforcing again how much, you know, the past is prologue um, or at least still matters. Mm-hmm. yeah like I think like I have a bunch of questions
0: related to that so what <laughs> you know what I mean like so one of them is is the yeah as I think about this you, you mentioned you know the, the the split between the southern yeah. you know the su- different souths there are and I do because I you know being from Dallas well being from Dallas we haven't lived in Dallas for a while and it, it Dallas is a very different place from western you know Asheville North carolina and then an hour west of yep. Asheville Cullowhee, north Carolina where western is I mean, it's it's almost kind of night and day, uh, and Dallas itself is just an urban, you know, mer- just a concrete jungle. Uh, and you can see that, you know, the southern identities, but it's very international. There's mm-hmm. multinationals, there's that. And then you, it gets increasingly homogeneous and also localized and regionalized as you move further into rural areas. So that's the other point people have made, is that maybe the, the New South or the, the southern yeah. identities are... More drawn uh, among uh, across uh, urban versus rural areas, and I I can that for for me that that resonates. And then the states that are benefiting more from you know Exxon Mobil headquarters and mm-hmm. or Dell or you know whatever you know pick, pick whichever multinational is there versus Mississippi who's just kind of puttering about in Alabama and they're just kind of and they're continue I know, vestiges of you know the kind of the, the old 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 South. Uh, so I'm curious as to you know that may be yeah. a part of it. I don't know if there's a way to connect that. Uh,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the um, the sort of the the Chuck Bullock idea of the stagnating South and the gross South. Mm. Um, I think that's exactly what you're seeing. Those are the exact types of examples. Even if you think within the South, so you know, grab a place like Charleston, um, South Carolina, that's had you know a lot more immigration. Um, from outside the south and from other countries even and that's one where democrats have had a little bit of a chance you know they had Mm -hmm. joe Cunningham as a member of congress for a little while Uh, he's the guy if you flip on tv flip on c-span you're like how did paul rudd become a member of congress that was was joe (laughs) that's him (laughs) Um, he actually just got beat by a republican named nancy mace but you know tight district Mm -hmm. um so i think absolutely yes the degree to which you know in migration will continue to drive southern politics is is super important and the urban rural thing just to underscore briefly um some north carolina examples which is what i know the best is recently as 96 urban and rural counties in north carolina had essentially the same voting behavior for um, they gave about the same level of support for um for president to each Mm. party right Mm -hmm. so in other words as recently as 96 there was no urban rural divide Okay. In North Carolina, today it's huge, mm-hmm. right? So it mm-hmm. is. They used to talk about North Carolina as being divided um, by region, sort of the eastern part, the Piedmont, and western North Carolina, and today there's no doubt that urban-rural is the defining line, much mm-hmm. more so than regional. So mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. There's there's a lot. To that urban rural divide that will continue to define the South and to define the country, frankly. I'm sure mm-hmm. you see that in North Dakota, see that in Oregon, right? Yeah, so, well,
0: for sure. Oh, yeah, no. You know, yeah.
1: Eastern Oregon ain't Portland, Yeah, or- <laughs> right. yeah no, no, <laughs> no, no, it
0: is not. No, it, and even, you know, a couple of hours, you know, or just Salem, you know, outside of Salem. Yeah. That's the reason why, so we had a bunch of the Proud Boys, or across the river, Washington and Washington, um, Vancouver, Washington. Uh, it's fair, much more conservative. Is that Portland is big, uh, you know, comparatively? And we are ultra progressive. Mm -hmm. And so our votes carry a lot of weight, much to the chagrin of the eastern of the state, part of the state that would love to just join. And as as they've said, you know, you guys, we're gonna create a new state. It's called Jefferson and we're gonna join with Idaho, because we're just tired of having to put up with your politics and You know, I, I, again, I've lived, I've been fortunate enough to live in rural urban areas. So I I understand that ethos. I understand Mm -hmm. the mentality and I can also see, you know, how how they don't want to live, you know, why things that affect them that we think in a certain way affects their lives very differently, why they should have put up with it. So I I understand that, you know, whether Mm -hmm. I agree with it, and that's a different ball of axe, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, but yeah, that's exactly right. So that, that urban uh, rural split kind of continuing to increase and well, so one of the, the solutions that people have been proposing and I'm curious as to whether What are your thoughts are one is you know get rid of the electoral college, right? Because mm-hmm. this is a vestige and it's mm-hmm. really just not serving your, your, the popular vote but, but other people are like if we do that then it will really create that split You know it will further divide that that urban rural split mm-hmm. will be magnified And another one is ranked voting so rather mm-hmm. than having an open primary census You, you get to your primary. So yeah, what do yeah. you think about the solutions?
1: Yeah. You know, so first of all, I think those are the conversations we need to be having. So mm-hmm. just to kind of like big picture orientation for me, um, you know, you turn on, tw- you make the mistake of, of clicking on Twitter or mm-hmm. any social media and you're going to see, um, what I like to call the 60 minute solution. Like there is a person and that person is at fault. And if we get rid of that person, then things can get better. And that mm-hmm. person might be, mm-hmm. if you're on the right, that might be AOC. If you're on the left, that might be Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what we need to be thinking through are institutional solutions, right? And they're a lot mm-hmm. sexier, but I think ultimately they're the ones that are going to matter. So, grab the electoral college first. Um, we talk about ranked choice voting, and then I'll, I'm going to shoehorn in a little bit about the Senate, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so on on the electoral college, I I kind of wish we would have two conversations about the electoral college. First, the notion of you know states getting all of their electors, which is critical, but mm-hmm. also the way you know the more boring part but the the part where like we have this long process where we officially have electors and those electors are pledged Mm. and then they have to wait because the horses needed to get to dc (laughs) so we don't actually cast count the vote until january right and people storm the capitol like there is a way even if even if You know, frankly, at this point, even if the Republican Party didn't want to get rid of the winner take all from each state system, I think we can maybe get a little bit of, you know, kind of action around getting rid of just the stuff that doesn't make any sense, the electors Mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, to me, that's two conversations um and the electoral college in general yes i mean i think people vote land doesn't Mm. vote there's some good counter arguments i'm more persuaded by the folks who argue we should get rid of it i don't think it makes sense um but again i kind of wish we'd split it into two rank choice voting um the cool thing is and one reason i like paying attention to state politics a lot and local politics is that we have examples of rank choice voting right Mm -hmm. so maine is doing it a bunch um san francisco is doing rank choice voting Uh, a lot of the west coast cities are doing it or some anyway Mm. um i think it's something we should look at i don't know that it's a panacea um and Mm. there is some evidence that it it's hard and that because it's hard and kind of confusing that perhaps it could um Further disenfranchise some folks who are less like, who know less, um, and and maybe magnify some of the um, uh, problems in the American electorate, the fact that it doesn't resemble America. So I think that's something to chew on. doesn't mean I don't think we should do it, but I think we need to think that through. Um, And it's certainly possible, and I've made similar arguments at other places, and very smart people who support ranked choice voting have popped back at me and said, yeah, but if everybody did it, we'd understand it. It's a Mm -hmm. fair point. But that's the conversation we need to be having. And then Mm. the third one that I'll shoehorn in is, you know, our United States Senate is the most malapportioned legislature in the world. Mm. So As much as I ain't a fan of the Electoral College, if you told me I can make the Senate more representative or I could get rid of the Electoral College, I would make the Senate more representative. Right. So right now, California and Idaho Mm. North Dakota all get the yeah. same they get two members right mm, uh, mm. and so the states where there are more cows than people have the same representation <laughs> mm. as you know states that have more people than most countries mm. and that that ain't right mm. uh, and that makes it very hard to be represented in any meaningful way so that's an, and then we get a, a won't I promise but people are having conversations now about the filibuster and whether we
2: need mm-hmm. that
1: right so, I was
2: curious what you thought about that, but we won't. Well, we'll <laughs> save that for a sequel, perhaps.
0: <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. if it, Is there anything else you have, Katie? I don't know. I'm trying to think. Of like, i like, I think we went through actually all of the questions that I originally thought about. Oh, but I, I don't was know.
2: just curious about the filibuster. Perhaps we can yeah, go Yeah, go for it. it. No. no. <laughs> Are you in favor of getting rid of it or not? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so the filibuster, right? So, for the the folks in in Iceland to continue to beat the dead horse (laughs) of the joke one more time, um, the filibuster says that um, you need basically a supermajority to get certain types of things through the United States Senate. Um, And so. You know, should we get rid of it? I tend to think that we should. Um, I've actually moved on this opinion. I was not of that opinion a few years ago, and no, that's not because now the Democrats are in charge of the Senate. Any stretch? It's, <laughs> At least that's it's, what you're telling yourself.
0: It is. That's it what your tell attack tells well. you. It's <laughs> not um,
1: because <laughs> that. It is. Uh, you know just the more I read about the the sort of racist roots of mm. the filibuster, the more I'm convinced you know I certainly don't study the filibuster, but folks who uh, who do and spend their lives studying this, I think are pretty uniform uh, in you know their condemnation of the filibuster. Uh, I also think the Democrats should be careful uh, what they wish for. Because the Democrats will not be in charge of the Senate forever. Right. Uh, my guess is in two years, the Republicans will be again. So if the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, they need to be doing it because they think it's the best thing to govern us in the long run, not because they think it'll get them the goodies in the short run because they'll get God in two years. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Do, you, do you have a
0: prediction of what uh, – you know? again, I if you were to ask me after the Obama second election – where Republicans would be, I really thought it would be like a more, Mm -hmm. more honed in on the economic messages and trying to figure out kind of like a bush of compassionate conservatism, because I think that his he definitely got more votes and he got reelected. Right. Yeah. Uh, And so I thought that that's that that would be the direction they would be going. And they did not. So I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not make a prediction as to where they're going next. But I'm wondering whether you, 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 and your people in who are swimming in this waters, what are you guys' thoughts you as know, conservative I mean, publics will be?
1: You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's a little bit of this that's normal, right? So mm-hmm. as I evidently is like the book club podcast, I'm just gonna keep suggesting random books. Right? No, that's, <laughs> that's great. So, that's the <laughs> There was a book after 2016 um, called Learning from Loss by a political scientist named Seth Maskit, And he's he's all over Twitter if you're a, if you're a Twitterer. Um, and uh, anyway, the point was after the 2016 election, Democrats were doing a whole lot of soul searching. And so he writes about, in very smart ways, about the process of that soul searching. So the notion that the losing party is trying to figure out what their future looks like, that is normal, um, right? So we need to recognize that. At the same time... What happened January 6th is not normal and um, recovering from a Trump presidency, I think, is going to look very different for the party. Um, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, and I'll, I'll give you a kind of a finer point on why I'm so confused. I think about the freshman class amongst Republicans. Okay, so. You've got, and there are more than just five, but I'll focus on five for a second. Um, so Madison Cawthorn in Western North Carolina, Marjorie right. Taylor Greene in Georgia, mm-hmm. and Lauren Boebert in Colorado.
0: Yeah, all um, Q adherents. Well, you know, uh, they
1: are, right? They've at least flirted with it, um, yeah. and and certainly are, are you know they're big Trump fans, right? And, yeah. and they they want to take down the establishment. They, um, if we think about the real fault line in the Republican Party, not being an ideology right now, but perhaps on whether you you know, where you stand on the, these institutions, they're Mm -hmm. anti-institutionalists, right? On the other side, you've got, um, Scott Meyer from Wisconsin and then Nancy Mace, we mentioned briefly from South Carolina who are, you know, very conservative in a, in a traditional Mm -hmm. sense, but are much more, um, okay with the basic, you know, want to support the basic institutions Mm -hmm. and kind of the way we've done things in some ways. And so, Seeing which one of those groups gets traction is, I think, going to go a long way to helping us understand the future of the Republican Party. Because you've got the Trump wing, if you will, and the establishment wing, if you will, both represented in that freshman class.
2: Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. All,
1: all five of those folks I named are media savvy. You know, yeah. I mean, Nancy Mace was on Meet the Press her first week in office. And Madison Cawthorn, you know, if you ever click f- on Fox News, he's going to be on. And if he's right. not, Martin Taylor Green or Lauren Boebert. Mm hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. so no prediction, but just basically keep eyes on on these how these two factions of the freshman class are going to
1: I think I just filibuster.
0: (laughs) 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 All right, cool. Well, it is now almost 25. I don't know if there's anything else. Any other points uh, that you like or Katie, do you have any other questions or anything else?
2: i do but i actually i don't want to take more of your time this has been really really fascinating and i appreciate you taking your time to talk to us today i i really learned a lot and appreciate your perspectives well, and your you. book recommendation
0: and yes, that sir. book yeah and by the way that book again from dr chris cooper is yeah.
1: the resilience of southern identity
0: available at uh, every fine bookstore that yes. you might
1: amazon etc etc and, and
2: can people yeah. follow you on twitter chris
1: they can i'm at chris cooper wcu so yeah feel free to give me a follow and uh try to not uh you know write too many nasty things to me <laughs>
0: <laughs> and if you're flying to iceland uh iceland air is the <laughs> airline of
2: choice. that's right it is iceland air <laughs> <laughs>